Well, I got to tell you a story that you're probably not going to believe. Okay, when I was a kid, I got in trouble all the time. I got in trouble. I know. What? I got in trouble a lot. I got in trouble so much that if something was happening in the classroom that should have been happening, the teacher would say, Stephen, and I could be on the other side of the room. She'd say, Stephen, or when, get this, when my dog would leave a mess on the floor, my mom would say, Stephen, it was just like an automatic response because I was getting in trouble, and I was. I was super talkative, rambunctious, hard to stay still. Uh, I remember one time in class, I was in my mind, I was putting out a fire with a massive fire hose. The teacher was right behind me just waiting for me to rec- recognize that she was there so she could finish the math lesson. Like, this is the kind of kid I was, right? High energy, uh, living in my own world, having lots of fun, enjoying life, but getting in trouble for it all the time. And also, this is type of thing would happen. If, uh, and there's this vivid memory I have of being in the playground at recess, and we were all swinging from this branch on the tree. So my friend swings from the branch on the tree, and then my other friend swings from the branch on the tree, and then I jump up and grab the branch. Stephen, what are you doing? You can't swing on the branch. And I thought, well, what about all these other people who were swinging on the branch? It's not my fault. It's not my fault. Sometimes I wasn't even in the middle of it at all, and I would get called out for it. I got kicked out of youth group as a kid for being, uh, for for causing trouble, and it wasn't my fault. Someone else was talking to me. I was just there. Have you ever felt like something wasn't your fault, but you got blamed for it? Yeah? Yeah, okay, three, only three, four people? I think we've all been there, right? Well, I want to tell you something this morning. Each and every one of you have been blamed for something that was not your fault. Each and every one of you. Something horrible happened. Something actually really, really, really bad happened. And you've all been blamed for it, and it's not your fault. And that sounds like bad news, right? Doesn't that sound like really bad news? Um, But what I hope we can see together is that that kind of thinking... That kind of action that the Lord takes towards us that we're about to talk about ends up being a good thing also. It ends up being a good thing. Um, in our passage today in Romans 5, and you can open up your Bible and turn there. Paul's talking about your sin and my sin, but he never mentions any of us by name. He doesn't even allude to us. He talks about your sin and my sin, but the only person other than Jesus that he mentioned in this passage, is Adam. You guys remember Adam? He's that guy who was in the perfect garden with perfect relationship with God, who was sinless, and God gave him one commandment, one commandment, and he didn't keep it. He didn't keep the one commandment, the one law that God gave him. He broke it. And because of him, sin entered into the world, has been with each and every one of us ever since. But that's not your fault, right? That doesn't seem fair. And before we read the passage, we need to talk a little bit about this idea because it's such a prominent idea here, and it's so foreign to us. If you've grown up in a Western culture, it's so foreign for many of us to think about someone else doing something and then us being punished for it, right? 
And it's this whole thing called corporate solidarity. That's the, that's the official term for it, but it just means this idea of whatever happens to your group happens to you. Whatever identifies your group identifies you. Whatever uh, punishment or whatever uh, uh, benefit comes to the group comes to you. And this is very common in ancient cultures, and it still is prominent in Eastern, many Eastern cultures. But for Westerners, it's hard for us to understand. Um, you know, there was, there was a time in this country where if you were going to a new place, you might take a letter of recommendation. And a person would give you a letter to take to a friend. So say you're traveling, and there's no hotels, there's no inns. There's, you, know, there's, you, you have to find somewhere to stay in someone's house. And you might take a letter of recommendation from a friend, and your friend would write to someone they know and say, please accept this person as if they were me. On the credit of my character and on the depth of our relationship, please let this person stay in your home. This is a common occurrence. Um, but that doesn't quite get to the heart of it. That's kind of like in that direction. But it's more like when... Uh, in Boston, when the Patriots have won the Super Bowl, which, by the way, they did six times since, you know, six times since 2000, or when the Red Sox won the World Series, which they did four times since 2000, pretty awesome, uh, the Celtics won an NBA championship, and the Bruins won the Stanley Cup since 2000. We're talking, what is that, 12 championships in the city of Boston since the year 2000. That's pretty amazing, right? When that happens, what do we all say? We won. We did it. We beat those whoever they are, and we won. But did any of us put on skates or put on the pads or make a jump shot or hit a home run? Certainly not in that game. <laughs> and yet we did it. We won. There's these select few people who stand on behalf of our, not only our entire city, but all of New England, right? All of New England is carried on the shoulders of these few people. In this case, these few men. Now what if it was not just a few men, but what if it was one man? Do you remember the story of David and Goliath? Goliath is out there with the Philistines, and they're attacking the Israelites. And uh, the Philistines say, I tell you what, you send out your best man, and we'll send out our best man, and whoever wins this fight wins the battle. That's corporate solidarity. One person, head-to-head, with the enemy, and whatever happens to him happens to all of them. Now, the king should have been the one to go out and fight. Right? King Saul, right? Yeah, King Saul should have gone out to fight. Who went out to fight instead? David. By the way, what happened to David after that? He became king. In the ancient world, what happens to the king happens to the people. What happens to the people happens to the king. Adam was designated by God to basically be the king of the human race. So whatever happens to Adam happens to us. Whatever Adam does falls on us. If you think about it, and you read the story of Adam and Eve, 
Who eats the apple? Not the apple. It's not an apple. That's the tradition. Who eats the fruit first? And Eve is immediately embarrassed and tries to cover herself, right? With fig leaves so that God won't see her shame. Right? No. Eve doesn't feel any shame until after Adam eats. Why is that? Because Adam was the one given the law, and Adam is the one who broke the law, and Adam is the one responsible for himself and for Eve and for all of humanity. You ever thought about that? Eve didn't sin. Adam sinned. Now, Eve wasn't supposed to eat that fruit. So, ladies, you're not off the hook. But it was Adam who was the one who was designated by God to stand for the human race and either be obedient and righteous or to uh, turn against God and go into sin. So Adam eats the fruit. He falls into sin, at which point Eve and Adam both feel shame for what they've done. They both try to cover themselves. They both run from God, and they're both kicked out of the garden. And then their children for all generations inherit this sinful nature. And because they've inherited a sinful nature, they're under the judgment of God. We are under the judgment of God because of our sinful nature. Now, that's not my fault. That's not your fault. And yet it's true. We have examples of this that, you know, little samples of this. For example, if you are the getaway driver in a bank robbery... And another person in your robbery team, whatever we call that, a gang or whatever, if they kill someone in the course of the robbery, you can be charged with murder. Right? Yeah, you're an accessory to the murder. But all you did was drive a car. Right? You're part of the group. What happens to one happens to all. Um, And then I think, you know, the last example I thought of was um, in... You know how sometimes there's someone that we esteem as kind of a, a big person in our in-group? I don't know if you guys, the one that came to mind this week for me was, I don't know if you've heard of Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias was an apologist. He was someone who defended the gospel. He preached the gospel around the world. He, would, uh, he was a brilliant thinker about the gospel. And it came out that he had been uh, involved sexually with these women and using his power and prestige in the ministry in order to do this. And when it was first reported, it wasn't that people at first tried to hide it. It was that they couldn't believe it was possible, so they dismissed it. And why couldn't they believe it was possible? Because if it's true about him, what might that say about me? Right? If he's doing that, then what does that say about me? What does that say about our group? What does that say about this ministry? What does it say? So they, It's like they couldn't even conceive of it as a possibility. So at first, it was dismissed out of hand. Sorry. And only later did people accept that it was true. And to the credit of Ravi Zacharias Ministries, once they realized it was true, uh, Fairly quickly, they worked to, to uh, address it, you know, instead of hiding it. So it wasn't the hiding at first. It was the unbelief. It can't be true. And so we all have these things where we're connected to someone. We're connected to a group. We're connected to a person. You know, if you vote for a certain person, then it's hard to hear negative things about them. 
um, because they're your in-group now because you voted for them. You're on their team. You know, this is part of the human psychology. We're built for this corporate solidarity. So keep that in mind as we read this, what God says about your sin and mine in relation to David and in relation to Jesus. Because, by the way, if, Jesus, if David was appointed the king of the human race, and we know that Jesus is the new king of the human race, then now we can begin to understand how it is that we can be righteous through the obedience of Christ if we understand how we can be sinners through the disobedience of Adam. All right, so let's read together. So in Romans 5, starting in verse 12, it says this, Therefore, by the way, you, this is the old, the old uh, little cliche, always find out what the therefore is there for. Why is it there? What is he saying therefore about? Well, he just talked about that we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. This is two weeks ago because Easter happened, right? So we've, uh, and he's saying that, that God showed us his love by Jesus dying for us while we were still sinners to reconcile us to God, bring us back into right relationship with God. That's what righteousness is. And that we have the righteousness of God, we have the righteousness of Christ because of his love for us, that while we were enemies of God, God reached out to us in love, reconciled us to himself, and therefore we are not under judgment anymore. When it says we have peace with God, we have peace because we don't fear judgment, because our sins have been forgiven. So therefore, he's going to explain, like, if that's true, well, how does this relate to our sinfulness? And where does it come from? And how, is it get, how do we get rid of it? Right? So he says, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death came through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned, and then Paul doesn't finish his sentence. Paul gets excited here. Right? So he's, he's transcribing. He's talking to someone. They're writing it down. And he starts getting excited about what he's talking about. And he doesn't even finish his sentence. Because normally you would have uh, something like, just as this happened, then this ha- then so also this happened. But he doesn't. He doesn't finish his sentence. But look what he's setting up here. He's setting up this case that we are sinful, that we are sinners, because one man sinned. That we're under judgment of death because one person disobeyed. And that through him, we have all sinned. Through that one person's sin, everyone has sinned. Now, this is a concept, again, that we struggle with. Uh, But it shows up in the Bible in multiple cases. There's this old story of Abraham who uh, goes out to battle. And he goes out to battle and conquers these other kings. And then from the, the... uh, trip the the booty uh, what do you call it the the loot <laughs> he gives tribute to this other king Melchizedek and he basically pays a tithe to Melchizedek and in the book of Hebrews it says that even though the priests don't pay a tithe under the temple system that through Abraham they all paid a tithe because they were in his loins when he paid the tithe right meaning that his descendants did something because their ancestor did it, and they were in him when he did it, which is a very kind of like metaphorical concept. It's they're not, that's not literally true, and yet they are kind of subsumed into that action of the one person who was their forefather. So all have sinned when Adam sinned. And then he, he kind of cuts himself off, and he goes on to say, to be sure... Sin was in the world before the law was given. 
But sin was not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. So think about this. In today's world, if you do something horrible, wretched, right? If you're just a total jerk or maybe beyond a total jerk, if you do something evil, but there's no law against it and someone takes you to court, the, the state or another person sues you or whatever, will they be able to charge you with a crime if there's no law in the books for the crime? No. No. In fact, we were watching a movie recently about these gangsters in the 1930s. And one of the points in the movie was that they were creating these federal laws, uh, federal criminal law code, because all the laws on the state level couldn't be applied to these mobsters because they were doing things across state lines and they didn't have jurisdiction. None of the states had jurisdiction to prosecute all these crimes. So they were actually creating a federal law so that they could convict these people of federal crimes. But they couldn't do it. They actually had arrested some of these men, but they couldn't do anything to them because there were no laws on the books. So where there's no law, there's no trespass. And so sin cannot be counted against you. It's not that you're not sinful, but there's no rules for you to break so you're not in trouble. Does that make sense? But look what he says next. Nevertheless, Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, which is when the law came. People were still dying. And what is death a sign of? Judgment. Death is the judgment for sin. So Paul's saying this weird thing. He says, look, before the law, uh, your sin couldn't be counted against you, but God was still judging people as sinful. How could that be? He says, even though those who who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, but he's the pattern of the one to come. All right, so what he's saying is this. Adam had a law, don't eat the fruit. All these other people didn't have any law, so they couldn't be found guilty, and yet they were still dying. And that's a conundrum for Paul, if you will. It's a conundrum for his readers. It's not something that we readily understand, but it's a truth about God, about sin, about history. That makes a big difference in how we understand our own salvation. But what he's saying is this. He says, look, even though these people didn't break any laws, because they're in Adam, they're under judgment. And it goes something like this. You are not, and from God's perspective, you are not a sinner because you sin. You're a sinner because you're a son or daughter of Adam, and Adam sinned. In fact, we could say that it's more true that you sin because you're a sinner than that you're a sinner because you sin. So God has kind of put you in the category of sinner before you've done anything wrong. This is why the church for millennia has said that we are born into sin. Right? Even before a baby has done right or wrong, a baby is under judgment as a sinner because they're in Adam. And by the way, which of you voted when you were born to be in Adam? Anyone? You're like, let's see, what are the choices here? Well, I could be in this group where everyone's counted a sinner and under judgment of death. I think I'll join that one. Right? No, you don't choose to be in that group. You're just put in that group. 
It just it happens to you. It's not something you do. And so this is the problem of sin. All that stuff that Paul said in Romans 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that no one seeks God, no, not one, that no one is righteous, right? All that stuff is true because we're children of Adam, because we were born into sin. And it's not your fault. But it is your experience, and it is true about you. And it is a problem, right? It's a really big problem. So look what Paul's going to do. Now he's going to use this explanation, use this foundational claim to show us how it is that we can be made righteous in Christ. This is where the good news comes in. He says this in verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. So Adam is the trespasser. He's the one who sinned. But the gift, meaning right, right, the gift of the gift of grace in Jesus Christ, it's not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? He says, if you're bound in sin because you're in Adam, how much more do you receive grace when you're in Christ? Nor can, this is 16, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. He's saying, look, from one sin, judgment entered the world, humanity was fallen, uh, we all were sinners, but after piling up numerous sins, God pours out grace on those who are in Jesus Christ so that the freedom from that sin, that gift is greater, greater than what came to you from Adam. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So he's kind of doing this, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, if this, then that. He's saying, look, if it's bad, if it's, if it's bad to be an Adam, because Adam sinned, then the goodness and the, the, the joy that comes from the grace of God is so much greater in power than the death that comes from Adam's sin. Because it came not only after this one sin, but now after many sins. It came after not only one man's rejection, but a whole, all of humanity's rejection. It came not after one act of disobedience, but trillions of acts of disobedience. So how much more powerful is the grace of God than the judgment that came from the one sin? He goes on, he kind of, he's, he's like trying to bring it home, like nail it down for us. And he's emphasizing it over. Verse 18, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted for condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Now this we need to pick apart a little bit. Because two things. First of all, Paul's using the word all 
twice here. And it can be confusing. And there are people who look at this verse and say, well, if all died under Adam and then all have life under Christ, then doesn't that mean that everyone goes to heaven no matter what? You see that problem? But if we remember the concepts of corporate solidarity and we remember what Paul is saying about Adam, then it helps us to understand what he's saying now about those of us who are believers in Christ. When he says that one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, he means all who are in Adam. So also, right, one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people, meaning all who are in Christ. And here's the deal. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. There's no other group you can be in because God has not, not appointed any other men or women in history to function as the head of humanity, the king of the world, right? So Adam is the head of humanity. He's the first head of humanity. And Jesus comes to be the new head of humanity. The Bible calls him the second Adam or the last Adam. And by the last Adam, it means there's only going to be two. There are no more who will come. There's not going to be a third Adam. So you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Okay? And by default, you start in Adam. Now, I've been teasing about this. You know, Romans has a lot to say about predestination and election and all that, right? And we all have these questions about how that works out. I would just note again that you didn't choose to be in Adam. You just, you were put in Adam. You were made to be in Adam. And that might have implications for how we understand being in, in Christ. And look at how what it says, just this very thing in verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, Right? They were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. It's a very important word. And that word made uh, is, is used in other passages in the Bible under, with the concept of being appointed. So someone is made the high priest. They are appointed to be the high priest. Uh, you, can, you can be made to be a governor, appointed as a governor. It's like you are inserted into a role, and once you're in that role, then you live out that role. So the high priest is appointed as high priest, and then he functions as high priest. You were appointed, and I was appointed to the role of sinner in Adam, and so we lived out that role as sinner. The beautiful thing is then God can appoint us to righteousness in Christ and then we can begin to live out righteousness in ways that we never could have possibly dreamed of before because we were not in the role before. And we just don't think about sin and righteousness like this. But God does. The Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to write these words to teach us something about what it means to be in either a 
broken relationship with God, which we call death, which is sin, and a right relationship with God, which is life, which we call righteousness. So you can be appointed a sinner, made a sinner, or you can be appointed righteous, made righteous. And it's all determined by which of these two men you have corporate solidarity with, either with Adam or with Jesus. Does this make sense? It's complex, right? It's like weird. It feels like out of our, uh, you know, normal way of thinking. It's a difficult concept. And then Paul addresses the very question that the kids are looking at downstairs. Because he said all this stuff before, like basically you can't be righteous by the law. Why can't you be righteous by the law, by the way, from what we learned today? Because we were appointed to the role of sinner and we're living out the role that we've been appointed to. So the law has no power to change our appointment. So why do we have the law? If we were already under judgment, and God, Paul says here, before the law, there was, there was sin, but it, wasn't, it couldn't be essentially like it, it couldn't be adjudicated because there was no law to, to bring condemnation. But we were already under condemnation in Adam, so why did God bring the law? And then he says something that feels so opposite of what we would expect. He says, the law was brought in so the trespass might increase. Why? Because where sin increased, grace increased all the more. If we look in the book of Galatians, we get, a, we get an additional insight into this and other places in the scripture. But Paul's saying essentially this, God brought the law so that we would not necessarily be more sinners than we were. We were already sinners. But so that we would be so alert and aware of our sin that we would long for something else to take us out of it. Right? If there's no law and you're living your life and you can convince yourself that I'm basically I'm a good person. Basically, you know, God should accept me because I'm, I'm a pretty awesome person. I'm a pretty great guy. Right? And then all of a sudden, you, you get this law which, which reflects back to you your own sinfulness, and it drives you to not, no longer trust in yourself and in your own ability to be good and desire some other relief for your sinfulness because you realize that you don't have what it takes to be righteous on your own. It forces you to come to grips with the fact that you have been made a sinner through Adam. And that nothing can change that as long as you're still in Adam. And so the law increased sin so that we would recognize grace when it came through Jesus Christ. It's a crazy kind of way of thinking if you're not used to it. But it actually makes a lot of sense. We know from history that when God dealt with Israel, for example, uh, what would happen when Israel abandoned God? Would God approach them and say, oh, hey, guys, come on back. I'm really a good God. You can trust me. Like, it's going to be fine. Just come on back. Is that what he would do? No, because that didn't work. 
What did God do? He handed them over to judgment. And in judgment, they would cry out to God for relief, and they would turn back to him and repent of their sins, and then he would come and rescue him, rescue them. Now, that's not because there's something particularly troublesome with the nation of Israel. No, that's all of humanity's like that. Each of us have experienced that probably in our own life, where we turn from God, and things got so bad we had to turn back, right? And God poured out his kindness, and God poured out his gentleness, and God poured out his love, and that didn't bring us back. But then when we hit the wall, so to speak, we finally realize, oh, I can't do this on my own. I need Jesus, right? We all face that. That's just part of being in Adam. That's part of being a sinner. It's not that God's not good enough to draw us back. It's that that's our design in a sense, but in, only because of Adam, not the way God originally created us to be, but because of our sinful nature. So he says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The same way that we were made in Adam and were made sinners, we were appointed to the role of sinner, and we lived out that role quite well, thank you very much. In the same way that happened, and that brought condemnation and death, in the very same way we can be made in Christ, we can be appointed to the role of righteous. We can have restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and where sin piled up, now grace overflows to bring us peace with God. Now, what happens to those who are forgiven much, according to Jesus? They love much. I think one of the problems for us when we struggle just to love Jesus, you ever struggle just to love Jesus? Like, I want to love him more. I want to love him more. I think sometimes the problem is that we have downplayed and we have collectively as a church downplayed our own sin. So we forget how much God has forgiven us. We forget how great the gift of grace is because we forget how great our trespass has been. And not only our trespass, but humanity's trespass. And sometimes we do. We think about this in terms of, well, I didn't sin that much. Well, first of all, wrong. But second of all, it's not about you. It's about Adam and the entire human race piling up sin for generation after generation after generation after generation. You're part of the group. And grace covers all of that. All of it. Jesus Christ died for all of it. I've shared with you before when I was a kid and I learned about the gospel of Jesus Christ and I believed it. I believed it. I mean, almost how could I not? When I was little, my dad's a pastor, grew up in the church, read the Bible, heard the gospel. It's like everywhere I went, there it was. And I remember thinking, and I've shared this with you with, with shame, right? Because it's just ridiculous. But I used to think, you know, I'm so grateful Jesus died for me. But I'm glad that I didn't have that many sins, so he didn't have to die that much for me. Right? Well, first of all, I had not, I had not blossomed into my full abilities as a sinner. 
at six years old, right? I mean, I told you I was in trouble all the time, but in my mind, I'm like this angel, right? All the, I was, that was all unjustified. I'm an, I'm an angel. I'm a really good kid. But the other thing is I just didn't understand that Jesus didn't die for each of our sins individually, right? It was the same cross for all of it. And the pain of that cross was not muted by me only being six years old and not having exhibited yet the fullness of my capacity for sin. He who is forgiven much loves much. And the only way to be forgiven is to step out of this corporate solidarity with Adam, right? And to step into the corporate solidarity with Christ. It's not about you getting your act together. It's not about you figuring things out so you can come to Jesus. It's not about you even being a better person afterwards. We're going to talk about that next week. You know, uh, I had a teacher who was, he would teach, I took his class in Romans, and he shared with us, he said, you know, I had another teacher in the, in the college come to me and complain that students in my class were going to other people and saying, we can sin as much as we want because Jesus died for our sins and we're righteous not by what we do, but by what he's done. And he said, well, thank you for sharing that with me. I'm glad to get the feedback. But uh, I'm glad that people are saying that. Because that's the same thing people said to Paul. So if they're saying that about my class, then I'm probably teaching it right. Because the very next verse is, in chapter 6, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? This is the charge Paul got when he taught that Jesus and his righteousness is something that we're appointed to rather than something that we do. It's something that we're inserted in rather than something we accomplish. If we're not being charged with lawlessness, then we probably aren't preaching grace the right way. Now, it's not about lawlessness in a sense, but it's absolutely about lawlessness in another. Because what Paul is going to illustrate and claim, which I hope you're already seeing, is that we're not under the law at all if we're in Christ because just like Adam had one test and he failed it, it says that Jesus had one test and he passed it. One righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. One righteous act. Yes, Jesus fulfilled all the law, but just like Adam was told, don't eat the fruit, Jesus was told, die an excruciating death to pay the penalty for mankind's sin. Adam didn't do what he was told to do. Jesus did. Through one act of obedience, righteousness comes to all men. So there's no act of disobedience you can do to annul it, and there's no act of obedience you can do to, to enhance it. The law has already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so the law no longer applies to anyone in Jesus Christ. And so the question, can we do whatever we want? Which we'll answer next week. 
Feel free to read ahead. But this is, the, this is how serious and how different and how extreme this teaching is, is that it leads people to believe these crazy things that maybe God is actually promoting sin. If you're not curious about that question, then I suggest that maybe you haven't gotten how extreme Paul's teaching is. If you haven't at least been thinking about that or wondering about that or questioning that, then, then you need to let grace be a little more extreme than you think it is. Because that's the response that Paul got. That's the response God gets. So it's not my fault. Goes from being the worst uh, cry of injustice to the greatest source of, of joy and, and gratitude. It's not my fault that I'm righteous. It's Jesus' fault that I'm righteous. It's not my fault that I have a relationship with God. It's Jesus' fault that I have a relationship with God. I didn't do it. Don't look at me. It was Him. Right? One act of obedience from the new king of humanity now has the gift of grace and righteousness applied to all of his subjects, all of his people, everyone who's in Christ. In fact, it says that it came with, it resulted in justification and life for all people, all people, meaning all people who are in that kingdom, all people who are in Christ, all people that that is their group. That's what the gift of the gospel is all about. It's not just that you didn't do anything uh, to earn it, right? It's that you've been taken from this place of condemnation as a sinner, and you've been reappointed to a new position of righteousness. And again, we're going to see that means, therefore, we can now live out this new appointment in a new way that we never could have before. And so rather than thinking, well, can I sin more because of grace? We can now have our hearts shifted so that we say, oh my goodness, I can sin less because of grace. I have a new appointment. I am a righteous son or daughter of the most high God because of the one gracious act and gift of Jesus Christ. So church, that's the choice, right? The choice is, will you be in Adam or will you be in Christ, right? There are no other options. There are no other options. One results in sin reigning in death, and the other results in grace reigning through righteousness to bring life. I love that verse at the very end, verse 21. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We all know the story of sin reigning through death. Everyone knows that story. But through the gift of God, we now know the story of grace reigning through righteousness to bring life. If you haven't put your hope there, my friend, there is no better time. There is no better time. This is the call. 
right? In Colossians, it says that those who are in Christ, it says that God took us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the sun, into the kingdom of light. It's such a beautiful um, picture of that reappointment. We were in a kingdom of darkness, and we've been reappointed to a kingdom of light, which is the kingdom of his son. Because we have a new king. We're in a new kingdom. We're in a new group. And our head, right, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, our new head passed the test to the benefit of us all. Let's pray. Lord, just to, just to understand or remember or maybe have a new understanding of, of how uh, powerful this shift is for us and to understand that, that um, it's not just that we did some things wrong, but that we were under judgment from the beginning, from birth, in a sense for who we were, just for being born. And it feels so uh, tragic. And yet, you made a way for us to avoid that tragedy by sending us a new king, a new representative of the human race, Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to live out of our new appointment, those of us who are in Christ, to live out of that new appointment as righteous, as holy, as redeemed and restored, and to no longer live out of the appointment of sinner, the one that we've left behind, the one that we've given up to take on this new uh, way of being in Christ. And Lord, in that, uh, help us to live out that appointment in ways that we previously thought impossible because the old is gone and the new has come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.